experience, we know that in the final day, there'll be victory in Jesus. Amen? Amen. But unfortunately, today, many of us are living lives that are short of a victorious Christian life. And my prayer is that we would begin to recognize a big element of victory even here now. I'm going to invite you, if you would, turn your Bibles to Romans 12, which in a moment will be our text. While you're turning there, if we're going to look at Romans 8, verses 26 through 27, as we look at our verses of confession to prepare our hearts for the reading and the preaching of God's Word. We've covered these verses as we've gone through Romans, but Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, listen to these last words, according to the will of God. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to to the will of God. And in the context, he talks about the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf and searching our hearts. Part of what we celebrated with the Lord's Supper last week was the element of let a man examine himself. And as is our tradition, we try to give you an opportunity of self-examination before we get into a study of God's Word. So we're going to just have a moment of silence. And if you would, search your heart as these verses suggest. And we'll spend a time in silent prayer that I will lead us in a public prayer of confession. Let's pray. spirit to us, those times when we just simply don't know what to pray or how to pray. So Father, this morning, our initial simple prayer is that you would, through your Holy Spirit, search our hearts for, to unveil the darkness in our lives where we have fallen short, so that, Father, we might truly have victory in Jesus. Father, grant us understanding this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I enter into our my last month before retiring at the end of the month, I went to Pastor Chris and asked about the opportunity of maybe doing a bit of a switch so that my last Sunday, which will be the 28th, which would be a sign that I would not be preaching up today. He'd be next week, then me, then he'd be the following. But he's allowed me to preach that last sermon, sort of my swan song, which I'm not 100% certain what I'll be preaching, yet I have an idea. And it may, in fact, tie in with this subject of victory. As I've gone through now the book of Romans for well over a year, as the Lord laid on my heart, I 
and we finished chapter 9, I sought the heart, uh, or through my heart sought the Lord as far as, since I can't finish the book of Romans, what text uh, might I leave as pastor of, of this fine church? And I feel that in, in 20 plus years, I've been, I've been pastoring for over 40, but about 25 of those years in pretty in-depth counseling ministry with church folks, non-church folks. And if I had to sum up the one question that would be, if somebody were to say, what is the most common question that you are asked in biblical counseling? Whether I'm counseling because of drug addiction, suicidal thoughts, marriage difficulties, financial difficulties, no doubt the most common question that I've ever asked in counseling and as a pastor has something to do with how do you know God's will? I'll almost guarantee everybody in this room, believer or non-believer, at some point had wanted to know what's God's will for my life? And how can I know that? I'm going to submit to you through our text in Romans 12. I'm going to present some thoughts this morning. And I've shared this with some. I believe there's a significant misunderstanding of knowing God's will. And it scares me sometimes that the reason we're not in it is because we don't know how to find it. Let me, be, let, me, let me bring the conclusion and then I'll build it back to a conclusion. I think we're so busy looking for the minutia of his will, we forget to be in it. And, and I believe I can show you that by scripture. And one of the things I love most about this text, and as I looked at my notes, I trust it won't get too deep doctrinally or theologically, but today there will be, and Pastor Chris and I both, almost every sermon you've heard us give some reference to the Hebrew and the Old Testament or the Greek and the New Testament. It's going to be quite a bit this morning because like other texts in Scripture, the meaning is lost because we've lost the understanding of the original language. And I think you're going to see that this morning. Now, I'll be speaking this morning my sermon titled, uh, is knowing God's perfect will. Uh, I, I believe there is some categorization of God's will. We, we hear people about wanting to know God's specific will, such as, uh, what should I do in this situation? Where should I go to college? What job should I take? Who should I marry? We talked about that Wednesday. But there's also the issue of not only knowing his specific will, but his general will. How should I live? What does God expect of me? But I do believe there is a third categorization of God's will, not only his specific will or his general will, but I believe it's his perfect will. Do you realize that there's only one verse in all the Bible that talks about or gives any reference to God's perfect will? And as you guess, it's where we are this morning. So if you are able, one last time, would you join me in standing as I read from the ESV, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and you listen to the terminology about God's will. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we thank you for your words this morning through your servant, the Apostle Paul. Or grant us understanding of knowing not only your will, but your good and perfect will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to share with you basically three points this morning. We'll be talking about a plea to know God's perfect will. Second, we'll talk about the prerequisites. There are some requirements, prerequisites to know his perfect will, and then we'll close by proving of God's perfect will. So our first point is this plea to know God's perfect will. Very simply, it's the very first verse we read. Only two verses we're looking at this morning, but we are going to get very deep into those verses. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore. I know King James reads, and I like how it reads, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. We don't use that word beseech, but you can sense the importance of that word. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, how? By the mercies of God. Now, the first key word there is this translated word appeal, or, or King James, beseech. The, the word does not mean as sometimes presented it doesn't mean to beg. It's, it's not that child at the candy store, at the grocery store, begging for that piece of candy. They don't leave you alone until you just buy it and say, I won't say it. It's not a begging, it's an urging. Now, begging is typically something that is just this desperate cry to do something, whereas urging seems to have with this sense of Tavish, I, I really need you to do this because of my concern for Tavish or, or Joyce, I, 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 I plead with you, please do this. So it's beyond a begging, it's something that expresses a, a deep compassion, which we're going to see further in the text. That's what Paul's doing here. And then he says this word, not a small word, Pastor Chris and I often talk about how important these small words are for, but this one is therefore. Now, I remember being taught in seminary, whenever you see the word therefore, find out what it is therefore. In other words, Paul is saying, because of all these things I've been telling you about, therefore I urge you. What's he been saying? Let me give you a brief recap. Because we've gone through nine chapters of Romans. Romans 1, Paul proclaims that God justified us or he, he pardoned our sins. Chapter 5 of Romans, he identifies with us by the death of Christ and reminds us that we are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And right behind you, we have the imagery of this, the death of Christ on the cross, 
and in the watery graves of baptism, which we've had the pleasure of experiencing several times already, where we are buried in our sin and raised to a new life. That's chapter 5, chapter 6, and 7 of Romans. Paul is now saying because of that death, we're under grace, we're no longer under the law. We're not bound by these issues. And then in chapter 8, he talks about how the indwelling of the Spirit helps us to live a righteous life. Chapter 9, which was basically my last sermon on this subject, through divine election, he mentioned that all this is possible and made through God's election of us, his selection of us. And chapter 10, we didn't get into yet, but chapter 10 talks about uh, there's no separation as we are engrafted, we being old covenant Jews and the New Testament saints, we are engrafted together under this term, the global term of Gazilat. And then chapter 11 talks about how we can have confidence in the faithfulness of God. He'll not let us down. As he took care of Israel, he'll take care of his people. And we get to chapter 12 where Paul says, as a result of all these things, I urge you. Now, when Paul writes this, he writes it in what we call in Greek the present tense language. Very similar to our terminology in English today. It's a constant. So when Paul says, I urge you, he's got himself his little smartphone. It's the Michael smartphone. You've been here sometimes, whether it's a Sunday or Wednesday, and I forget to turn off my reminder. Carol will tell you, I have 7,458 reminders, give or take some, because I forget things. Paul's saying to the church at Rome, you're like me, Brian. We forget things. Robin, right? We forget things. And so I'm going to keep on urging you because you need to be reminded. Well, so do I. I have to use that thing to remind me that's why they call mine the smartphone. It was originally called the dumb phone, but I had so many reminders, it's now called the smartphone. <laughs> Paul's just doing this constant reminder. But then he goes about to explain his plea. Look at the, again, back to Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, brothers, how? By the mercies of God. Now notice that word mercy, it's in the plural. He's not just talking about God's general mercy, he's using in the plural sense because his compassions, his mercies are many. In fact, there are several Greek words that are used, but the word used here is one of the strongest of the words, but it's actually only used five times, the Greek word, only used five times in the Greek New Testament. I'm going to share a couple of them with you. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. There's that word mercy, the Father of mercies, plural. And with that mercies, because with mercy comes comfort. Then he also writes to the church at Colossae, Colossians 3.12. And Paul says, put on then, and it literally means put on and keep it on, as God's chosen ones, put on holy 
and beloved. That's who he's writing to. He writes this, compassion. That's the same word translated mercy. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So mercies and compassions are very much related as far as this Greek word. Now, as we get to the text here, the one other thing that's important to recognize is who Paul is writing to. Let me tell you something. If you have never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you'll have an opportunity today. But let me make one thing clear. God's will for your life is to trust and to believe Jesus is Lord. Amen. There's nowhere else to look. That's it. Why do I say that? Because when Paul says these things about knowing God's perfect will, he says, therefore, brothers. That's a term that was meant for believers. Paul was writing to Christians saying, Christians, this is what you need to do. In other words, an unbeliever can never know God's will for their life. Where to live, who to marry, what to do until you first know him. You can't know his will if you don't know his heart. And that's what Paul is trying to emphasize here when he says brothers. So literally, if we were to sort of retranslate this, the Butobe, it might sound something like this. My fellow believers, I constantly urge you all, because of all that God in his compassion has done for you. He's trying to tie all this together. So that's the plea to know God's perfect will. Second, we get into the prerequisites of knowing God's perfect will. This gets pretty substantive. Back to our text, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Verse says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's what we've read already. What we've discussed, the plea. Then he says, to present your bodies, how? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. King James says, reasonable service. And then verse 2, the very first part of me says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul, the Apostle Paul, I believe, gives three prerequisites, three requirements, if you would, to knowing God's perfect will. You ready? These are key ones to really write down. Truly want to know his perfect will. Here's how it starts. Number one, be a living sacrifice. ESB says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So that's the first prerequisite, but here's the question. What does that mean? Now, this is where, again where the Greek gets extremely interesting because I'm telling you, 90% of the time, this gets mistaught and mispreached. Because what we have oftentimes heard taught, and what sounds good, is just presented something like this. And again, this sounds good, and you're already going to hear my hint. Every day, every morning, Leah, every morning, Gary, get up and present your bodies. Every morning. Get up and present your bodies. That's present tense. That's good preaching. Amen? Shouldn't you do that? 
That's not what Paul says. Whoa, what do you mean? He uses an aorist tense verb, which is past tense. An aorist tense verb is a single, simple action in the past not to be repeated. Whoa. Here's what Paul's saying. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Remember the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. We place ourselves through our sins on that cross. We show the symbolism of baptism being buried. We present ourselves permanently to God. Here I am, Lord. Sort of like the judge. Who, who will come for me? Here I am, Lord. Send me. How many times should God have to send us? Really, in reality, once. Go! And this is a unique concept because it seems to fly in the face of what we've often been taught. But if you think of it logically, if we can get ourselves to the state of mind of a single presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, yes, we keep living, but the presenting is realizing it's finished Victory in Jesus is finished. Amen. There's no other way to slice it up. And that's why we are so much and so often living a non-victorious life, because we keep excusing ourselves and representing. How many times are we saved? We are taught as Baptists, once saved, always saved. Aristotle's one time act on the cross. And that hopefully will change some of your mindset of what Paul is trying to emphasize here. Now, in addition to that, in addition to being aorist tense, there's this thing called voice. The Greek had three major ones, active voice, middle voice, passive voice. We're familiar with two of those in English, but active voice basically is Think of baseball. I hit the ball. Subject acting on the object. I hit the ball. Passive is the ball hit me. I'm not giving the action. I'm receiving the action. And the middle voice is simply, I hit myself. Which oftentimes is needed. But for those of us who have been married, that's what we got married for, for the wife to help take care of that. I'm only kidding. We will cut that out later on. Most of us, when we see present your body as a living sacrifice, most of us want this to be passive. Jesus, that's your job to present me a living sacrifice. And again, sometimes it's preached that way because that sounds like decent doctrine. We put it all on God. Yet Paul writes this in the active voice. You know who is to present your bodies? Yourself. As one of your pastors, I can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your church can't do it for you. Listen, and this may sound awkward, the word of God itself can't do it for you. You must be active yourself in presenting yourself. It's an active participation. And it goes beyond pew sitting. 
Paul is saying that we need to be active in knowing God's will by, by doing. You want to be a pew sitter? I'll tell you this. You'll never know God's perfect will, period. You can't. You're not doing anything. You're not presenting. But then we go on to the next part is, what are we presenting? Well, Paul tells us, I urge you, this is not a spiritual cliche, Paul says present your bodies. It's more than when somebody comes to you, from, it's more than simply saying I'll pray for you, but it includes I'll, I'll do this for you. You may oftentimes, and maybe you've done this yourself, whether you've heard somebody say it or yourself have said, I would die for Jesus. Well, great. Here's the question. Will you live for him? Living for Jesus. In other words, will you be a sacrifice? Paul says, How I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. As opposed to the constant slain sacrifices of the Old Covenant. And then he explains it even further by saying, holy and acceptable unto God. You see, when we present our bodies once and for all, one time, when we present our bodies once and for all with a total commitment, and we actively pursue that lifestyle, that, my friends, is when and how we become holy and acceptable. And by doing this, there's a significant result, and it's simply this, as Paul writes, it becomes acceptable to God. Most of us, whether growing up as a child, or once we became married, once we became employed, whatever the situation might be, I hope one of our desires is to be acceptable to others. We sure, we want to be accepted, but we're talking about being acceptable to others by pleasing them. You want to please God and to know His perfect will. We do so by offering our bodies physically, I believe that means, not spiritual cliche, by living for Him. But I also believe that means to in essence, properly care for our physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We have a physical obligation to care for ourselves. I'll be first to admit I've not done the best of that in my life, more ways than one, either through eating habits or 
lack of exercise habits. In fact, in, as I shared when I announced that I felt the need to retire and step down because of my physical health, there's been some constant decline in through the urging, the wise urging of my wife who kept saying, I want you to schedule an appointment with that doctor. And she kept urging me until finally this week I did. So that I can honor this body that God gave to me. While yes, it's frail and becoming more frail, I'm so obligated as God has placed me on this earth to care for my physical body. I think that is part of this text as well. So the first requirement is present ourselves. But second, he says, be not conformed, or do not be conformed. So the first requirement of living sacrifice, second one, do not be conformed. Back to our text, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, the second part, do not be conformed to this world. So remember, we started off with the urging that's present tense. Paul continues to urge. Then we move to the presenting our bodies, but that was errors, not ongoing, but a single act. Now we move to this negative instruction where Paul says, do not be conformed. Now the way, again, the Greek language is written, very similar in principle to the English language, you can tell people to stop something in one of two ways. And understand, listen to what I'm saying. You can say cease or stop as in don't ever start doing this. Son, don't ever smoke. Son, don't ever do drugs. Daughter, don't ever be alone with a man. Don't ever do it. Stop, don't ever do it. But the other way is someone has been doing something and you say you need to stop doing that. You notice the difference? One is don't ever start it. Second, stop what you've been doing. Paul says here, stop conforming. It's the second use of the way that the Greek writes it. Paul says, you're already conforming. Stop it. I love back in counseling when I was doing a lot of training with a called NAME, now called the Association of Certified Biblical Counseling, they would always show this little blurb of Bob Newhart. You may have seen this, but he's serving as a counselor in this little skit. Lady comes in and she's pouring out his heart. Her, she's pouring out her heart and he's sitting there listening and he, he's got the clock in front of her because he said, I'm charging you by the minute. So he sets on the clock and she spills her heart. She keeps looking at his watch. She keeps going on, keeps looking. She keeps going on. He goes, I've got your answer. She said, good. He said, yeah, listen, listen. He says, stop it. She goes, what? He goes, simple. Stop it. That's what Paul's doing here. Stop it. As one of your pastors, you're struggling with an issue of sin. Here's what Paul says. Stop it! Stop conforming. 
That's the language here. What does it mean? It literally means to fashion or pattern yourself after something. That word conform. To pattern yourself after something or after someone. It's used in another text. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1.14 when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The root Greek word, I'll say it in Greek, and I think you'll hear it in part the English word, is schematizo. Schematic. Schematizo. Schematic. In other words, it's it's, it's about trying to form a replica. It reminds me of asking this question oftentimes of churches today in general, and, and don't answer this out loud, but the church in America as a whole today, is the world becoming more like the church, or is the church becoming more like the world? Think about it. Is the world becoming more like the church, the world conforming to us, or is the church becoming more like the world? We are conforming to the world. Tom Rainier, who has moved on to other roles within Southern Baptist realms, uh, wrote an article in what was known as the Baptist Press. This goes back just about 10 years ago. At the time, he was the dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism. But he talked about how since 1980, within Southern Baptists and other evangelical denominations, that baptisms have basically been flat and have begun to decline. This is all pre-COVID. And he gave six major reasons why the decline in what we know as evangelicalism within Southern Baptists and other evangelical faiths. He said the evangelical fields of the United States are much less receptive in the past year. Two, he says, the socioeconomic gains tend to reduce evangelistic health just Christian groups. So third, Southern Baptist pastors are not personally evangelistic. They may sound like it from the pulpit, but out there they're not. Fourth, he says, the Southern Baptist Convention fails to recognize adequately churches with significant conversion growth. Then fifth, he says, only a small number of churches have significant evangelistic effort. But I find interesting his sixth element. He says this, the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention are not evangelistic because they have too many unregenerate members. Let me put that to you in plain English. The reason Southern Baptist churches are not evangelizing because our members are not saved. Try that on for a second. In fact, he would suggest of a congregation this size, 12 to 15 of you who are members aren't even truly saved. That's what his statistics say now. Why do I bring that up? Because we as Americans want to talk about revival. In fact, one of our favorite verses, is it not? That uses, and even Pastor Chris mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that how oftentimes it is taken out of context, but we still love to use that verse, 2 Chronicles 7 14. If my people 
which are called by my name, shall humble himself and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So as he says it, if my people, as them believers, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he then says, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. That's when we would see revival, in principle. But in order for that to happen, the church in America must repent and stop conforming. That's how we would know God's perfect will. The living sacrifice, stop conforming. Third one, be transformed. I give to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but, don't do this, but do this, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. But we're not just a religion of negatives, we're not just a faith of stop this, Oftentimes, people say that church is all about stop doing this, stop doing that. Listen, we're also a church about do. This is what Paul says here. Not only stop conforming, but the opposite, be transformed. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's look at the tense again, because I think it's important. This tense is, in fact, present tense. We need to keep being Transform. Why? Because it's a tough world out there. Because there's a lot of things bombarding us. There's a lot of things testing our faith. It's not just a one-time act, but it's something that it is, in fact, ongoing. Be transformed. Be constantly transformed. Every day seek to be transformed. But then we go back to the voice. Active, middle, passive. Active says, Ben, you need to get up each morning and actively transform your life. It may sound good. Let me ask you something. Not Ben. I'm thinking of a lot of people today, but I'm, I'm getting more than one of you. I'll get to you sooner or later. Just hang on. George, you're coming. Also known, also known as Ronnie. <laughs> Be transformed. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think would do a better job transforming? You or God? This is written in the passive. Stop conforming, but allow God to transform you. That's passive. You know why? You can't do it. I can't do it. We don't have it within us, the strength, the physical ability, the knowledge. We don't have it. And yet we try to present ourselves like we can do it all. Just come to super Christian with the big S on our cake. But you can't do it. <coughs> you need to stop conforming. And while and as you stop conforming on a regular basis, allow him... Get rid of this, allow this to come in. That's the process. You get rid of, let him do. Be transformed. Now, you, 
of you have heard this word, back to the Greek, the Greek word for transform is the word I'm going to say it exactly as pronounced in Greek. You'll know the English words easily here. Metamorphosis. The verb is metamorpho. It means to change again into something else. A polywalt or tadpole. A larvae or caterpillar, or a caterpillar then to a butterfly. As Paul would say to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away through metamorphosis. Behold, the new has come. But how? How does that transformation take place? Well, it's not your doing, it's God's doing. But what does he do? Look at the next part of the verse. By the renewing of your mind. In other words, to make it new again. We've all heard the phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Garbage out. Well, let's be positive Christian. How about good stuff in, good stuff out? Paul talks about this in Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any virtue or if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You may have used the phrase when you've said to somebody, your mind's always in the Better. Paul said, you want to renew your mind? Think about these things. We've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. What about this? You are what you think. How do we renew the mind? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So, we do not lose heart. Now our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Again, back to the tense. This is present tense. Ongoing. Yes, one time present your body, but the renewal of the mind, the transformation is in fact ongoing. Because we have so much garbage coming our way. It gives us the responsibility to stop conforming but allowing God to transform us as he seeks to renew our mind. How does he do that? By you thinking on those things. Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4 22 and 24 Put off your old self. Interestingly enough, it's like the armor of God. Again, very mispreached. You know what it says? Put on the whole armor of God. We want to put on the armor every morning. Sounds good. It's Aries tense. Put it on and leave it on. You know why you put it on and leave it on? When does the enemy stop attacking? Never. You don't take it on and off. You, you put it on, you leave it on. Because he always attacks. Put off your old self. Leave it off which belongs to your former manner of life, and that is corrupt through deceitful desires, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to be on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You see, it takes action on our part. There's so much dealing with this whole subject of the, the battle of the mind. I've got a book that I read 30-something years ago, The Battle of the Mind. So much of our sin struggles start with the battle in our mind. Is that right to do? In fact, we find more ways to justify sin than to get rid of it. I knew I wouldn't get a lot of amens out of that one because that's back to life. Well, didn't this happen? Or didn't that happen in the Old Testament? Didn't Moses do this? Didn't so-and-so do that? Just because it's recorded in the Scripture doesn't mean it's right to do. It takes action. Paul writing to young Titus, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We must allow the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me close quickly. We look at the plea to know God's perfect will. That was quick. Prerequisite was long. Proving is short again. We have a good time. Proving of God's perfect will. Back to our text, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your body to and sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, here's the deal. After you follow these prerequisites, then you can know not only God's will, but God's perfect will. Holy and acceptable to God. In other words, are your actions well-pleasing to God? Paul writes this again in a different way to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 5 uses the same exact word as far as perfect or well-pleasing in Ephesians 5.10. But let me read to you verses 6 through 11 so that you understand the context of Ephesians 5.10. Let no one deceive you with many empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, do not be conformed, don't associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. They take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, this one gets tough, not only don't participate in them, but instead expose them. Call sin, sin. King James says in verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto God. Paul, again, one last verse as we look at Philippians 4.18 says this, I have received a full payment, and more I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, my friends, God, in his ultimate sovereignty and wisdom and desire, desire to look down upon each and every one of you 
and say, Behold, my son, behold, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Is that his thought of you this morning? If you're here this morning, and you fall into that category of being here in physical body, but not truly here spiritually. That, in other words, you've played the game. Maybe today's the day you've said, enough is enough. I'm finished playing the game. And in fact, in your heart, you know that as God is looking down on you, he is not thinking, well done, daughter, well done, son. If that's you, you're going to be given an opportunity to come to the altar and talk to Pastor Chris myself. Maybe you're a believer here this morning and you, you've never gone through the watery grave of baptism, which is to me is the first sign of obedience. Maybe you're not an official member of this church and God is calling you to say, listen, I'm going to be officially part of that work. Maybe you're not doing what God has called you to do. Maybe you're living in sin that needs to be dealt with. Whatever it might be, the altar will be open. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. And we're going to be singing a song of invitation in our tradition. You, you know what the process is. It's nothing magical of coming to the altar. But it is indicative of making a decision to stop conforming and allowing God to transform. You've got a part. You've got to take action so that God can pour into you his spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning that does not understand this concept of being washed in the blood and victory in Jesus, would you convict them this morning through your spirit? Father, if there's a believer here this morning that has just been struggling with this whole issue of being conformed to the world and there's a conviction to be transformed, Father, would you lay on their heart through the Holy Spirit and come to the altar? And lay that to the throne. Father, maybe it's just staying in the pew and making this commitment. Father, I pray that you deal with hearts. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Would you